Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hi there, Alistair Campbell here. And first of all, thank you from me and Rory Stewart for listening to The Rest is Politics, uh, which is back at number one, I see. Now, in this week's episode, you might remember I made reference to our sister podcast, The Rest is History, who'd been discussing George Bush's famous quote about looking into Vladimir Putin's soul. Well, we thought we'd give you the chance to listen to the episode in full. It's the first of a four-part series on Russia from the final days of the Soviet Union to today and Putin's violent kleptocracy. If you want to listen to the other episodes, the link is in the episode notes or just search for The Rest is History wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you enjoy it and hope you come back to us. The rest is politics next Wednesday. All the best. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. And uh, we would like to go over to Crawford, Texas, where we are joined by a special guest. I'll answer the question. I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Uh, we had a very good dialogue. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. He's a man deeply committed to his country and the best interests of his country. Uh, and I appreciated so very much the frank dialogue. There was no kind of diplomatic chit-chat trying to throw each other off balance. There was uh, a straightforward dialogue. And that's the beginning of a very constructive relationship. Um, I wouldn't have invited him to my ranch if I didn't trust him. That was my brilliant impression of George W. Bush. It wasn't actually. No, that, was re- that really was George Bush. That was, George, that was our first presidential guest. Uh, and that was the occasion in 2001 of his first meeting with uh, President Vladimir Putin. In light of the current situation, um, we thought that it would be interesting to look at some of the historical context. We've already done an episode on the history of Ukraine, but we thought that it would be, you know, I mean, essentially everyone is asking, how did we get here? What is it that's yeah. prompted Putin to do what he's doing? Um, you know, what what is the background? What, what is there an explanation for it that can be discovered in, in history, I suppose, and in his, specifically in his biography? This is a field that you are much, much more familiar with than I am. But I guess I lived through it, so a lot of it. Yeah. I think, Tom, there's that apocryphal saying by Napoleon, isn't there, that if you um, know the world, if if you've studied the world when a man was 20, you, you know how his mind works. And um, Vladimir Putin, like any Russian of his generation, he's born in 1952, has lived through the most colossal, almost unimaginable political, economic kind of social changes in the former Soviet Union and, and Russia. And if we and it's only by understanding what's happened to him and his country, I think that you can actually get get into his into his well attempt to get into his head and to understand why Russia is now as it is. So now it's becoming, you know, it appears to be becoming this pariah state, kind of shut off behind a new iron curtain of sanctions. How on earth has it got here? And that's what we're going to try and try and investigate. I mean, Dominic, you're of course, it, it's been an absolutely convulsive period of change. But there is also always the historians uh, question change or continuity. And you could say, I mean, people have been saying that actually not that much has changed. 
that the Soviet Union was a, a, a political system founded on lies, founded on a, a profound suspicion of the outside, uh, founded on an emphasis on military prowess over everything else. And you could say that Russia today is showing, you know, much the same is the air of that. Yeah, I don't. That. Normally, I'm a great determinist in this podcast, but I don't think that's really true. Actually, I think that misses. Um, you know, obviously, Putin himself is a product of the Soviet system, which we'll go into in a second. But I think when you actually go through the period of change, you see that there were alternative paths that Russia could have taken, and and Russia isn't fated to be this sort of right um, violent, you know, a nationalistic kind of hellhole that, that that so many people imagine. You know, what happened in the in the in the USSR in the 1980s and then in Russia in the 1990s there are all kinds of contingencies and twists and and so on and there were alternative futures for Russia as we will see but just just before we go uh, to to look at um the last decade of the Soviet Union you talked about the idea that that Russia wasn't fated to become what it is now but that idea of fate the idea that Russia has a particular destiny i mean that is something that is very strong in Russian culture and actually much older, of course, than communism. Yeah, the sort of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, well, I mean, there are two different things, aren't there, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, but the sort of, the idea of Russia having this almost, as you would say, Tom, this almost kind of sacral destiny, you know, the, the third Rome, um, the home of orthodoxy, kind of on the edge of Europe, half in Europe, half out. I mean, that is very deeply rooted in Russia's sense of itself, the sense of embattlement, um, a sense, a, a distrust of the outside, but also a fascination with it. Um, so yes, all those things are 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 there. But there is a sort of slightly stereotypical way we talk about Russia. So we always talk about. I mean, even George Bush did it there when he talked about knowing Putin's the soul. soul. Yeah, the idea of the Russians having a soul that you must understand that is incredibly deep and dark. I mean, nobody says that about you know um, uh, Belgium. Yeah, Belgium. No, nobody says that about Belgium. Maybe Bart Van Loo, our previous guest, would say that. But also, about I mean, pe- today, when you apply the word exceptionalism to countries, it's generally a, a pejorative. So people are very sniffy about the idea that there might be British exceptionalism or French exceptionalism. Or American Even though yeah. clearly, you know, I mean, they are all very exceptional countries. But in Russia, it seems to be something that yes. is pretty fundamental to the way that uh, – not just Russian politicians, but large numbers of people within the country think of Russia. Would yes. you say that's fair or they, am I stereotyping? I, I think it, I think it abs- no, I think it probably is fair. I think that's the way that a lot of Russians are, are told to think about themselves, that they have an exceptional, um, a unique past and a kind of exceptional destiny. And that uh, we do think of Russia typically as having an exceptional character. Outsiders do. And that's all that stuff about the Russian soul and about, you know, Russians are terribly kind of warm people, but they're but they're also that the price of human life is lower and all that sort of thing that you hear so often. Um, yes. So I think there is a kind of exceptionalism, both projected from the outside, but also believed inside. I mean, it was expressed very unsettlingly by Putin and I may be paraphrasing him here and I, you know, this may be um, disinformation, but didn't he say something to the effect talking with regard to nuclear weapons, that um, a, a world without Russia wouldn't be a world, you know, why should the, why should the world exist? If it exists without Russia. Russia. Yes. And not only has he said that, by the way, but um, his kind of mouthpieces on Russian state television have used exactly the same line. So that's, yeah, a well-worn line, actually, in the sort of Putinist ideology. Right. Okay. So a bit unsettling coming from people with the largest quantity of (laughs) nuclear nuclear weapons weapons. on the face of the planet. But um, 
something that, as we said, can be traced back to the Tsarist period, but obviously gets a particular refinement under communism, where what had been the Russian Empire becomes the Soviet Union. And as the Soviet Union is one of two superpowers and sees itself charged with a, a historical destiny, it is the midwife of world communism. That has sustained it throughout decades of transformation and upheaval. By the 70s, when Putin is coming of age, that sense of purpose and of destiny perhaps is starting to fade. Uh, it's the age yeah. of Brezhnev, a man with kind of insanely huge eyebrows and, you and a kind of rigor mortis starts, <laughs> yes. isn't it? I mean, they're all kind of basically dead. They are constantly getting colds, but yeah. keep them in their beds for five years. Uh, they wear nothing but overcoats. They wear things under the overcoats, Tom. Do they? I mean, I've never seen any evidence for that. <laughs> um, um, yeah, you're right. So it's always Putin. snowing. So what's going <laughs> so, on? So Putin is born in uh, Leningrad, St. Petersburg in 1952, and he's from a working class family. His parents work in a factory. Um, and he goes to Leningrad State University in uh, 1970, I think, and he's there for five years. And so, so he comes of age in the Brezhnev era, as you say. Um, and it's an age of... It's, it is not an age of revolutionary zeal at all. So you mentioned communism and, and, and um, a sort of sense of, of communist zeal, but that really isn't what typifies the Brezhnev regime. The Brezhnev regime is all about stability and there's a kind of ordinariness to it. So for most people who are alive in the Soviet Union at that point, the Soviet Union is all they've ever known. Um, and everybody in the world, you know, in America and Britain, in Western Europe and in the Soviet Union, thinks the Soviet Union is going to probably be around forever. You know, it is, as you say, one of the two superpowers. Um, it's sclerotic. Uh, the economy is producing enough to keep people happy, so they're fed. They've actually got more consumer goods than ever before. Um, you know, Robert Service in his History of Russia says, uh, one, I think he uses the phrase, most Russian workers had never had it so good as they had it in the 1970s. So they've got fridges, they go on holiday, they're, you know, life's okay. But relatively, relatively, they've never had it. I mean, they've never had it so good, but relative to the capitalist West. Of course, it's falling Economically, further. they're starting to fall behind. For, for, and and the, the prosperity, the apparent prosperity of the 70s is based on a fiction. So it's based on a sclerotic, com- incredibly complicated, top-down um, sort of system, you know, the, the sort of parodies of sort of state planning and tractor statistics and all that stuff. They're all, they're all rooted in truth. But it's also rooted in high oil prices. So high world, they're, they're almost living a bit of, a, a bit of an illusion. Because when the oil price falls in the 1980s, that's going to pull the rug out from the from the system. And Brezhnev, as you say, I mean, he's not Stalin. You know, he's nothing like Stalin. He's not. It's still a very autocratic system. It's one that represses dissidents and shoves them into psychiatric hospitals. But it doesn't kill lots of people. Um, so life kind of you know goes on. And for a young man like Putin, his ambition is to join the KGB. Um, supposedly he applies to join and they say to him, well, you don't apply, you know, we contact you. But they kind of make a note of him because they know that he's loyal and hardworking and all this sort of stuff. Um, so for him, he thinks he's going to be, he thinks he's joining the intelligence service of one of, the, of, of, of the, actually the world's great power because the 1970s is a terrible decade for the kind of the United States. It's the decade of Nixon and Carter and Vietnam and this sort of introspection. And the Soviet Union there's a sort of sense that the Soviet Union might even be winning the Cold War. Burying them. Burying them, as yes, as Khrushchev said to, said to Nixon. So there's this sort of false, false 
image, I think, that people have about their own society in the 70s. And there are some people at the top of the Soviet regime. So in particular, the man who's going to succeed Brezhnev, who's a man called Yuri Andropov, who is the head of the KGB. There are some people who know that there are deep problems, that Russia has, you know, I say Russia, the Soviet Union has huge problems with alcoholism, with absenteeism, um, that its birth rate is is struggling, um, that, you know, high rates of corruption, all these kinds of things. Um, but Putin doesn't see this as a young man, I wouldn't have said. Well, two questions. First of all, Putin, is he a committed communist as a young man or is he a committed nationalist? What's the balance there? If you read sort of his semi-official biography, it says that he reads, you know, he enjoys reading Marxist-Leninist books when he's at, he's at school. I mean, I think it's a bit like Christianity, Tom. Is it? You, it is, in this, <laughs> oh. sense, in this sense. There's a difference between being a Christian in the second century AD and being a Christian in the 16th century when everybody's a Christian and, you know, mm. you're not a radical, you're not a rebel, you're not necessarily... Well, you might be in the 16th century... Yeah, but you might not be. You might not. You might be a good Christian, but none of those things. You might just yeah. be an apparatchik. And um, I think he's a communist in the sense that he's listened to everything he's been told, and that provides his framework. But I don't think he's a. I don't think he burns with the zeal of social mm -hmm. justice or, or with revolutionary enthusiasm. Okay. Or I don't I, actually, Tom. I don't think. I think a lot of the people who are running the show don't burn with revolutionary zeal. Okay, that was my other question. But uh, I think before I ask that, let's take a quick break. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos... Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. You were just saying uh, before the break that um, a lot of the people at the top of the Soviet Union are not burning with kind of revolutionary communist zeal. And the question I asked you was on Andropov. He's the guy who, who notoriously has the cold. It lasts for what, kind of four years, three years or something? I mean, he's in, I mean, basically, he's incapacitated for the whole period of his term of as general secretary. His, yes. And then he's succeeded by Chenenko, who is kind of, in many ways, even more moribund. Are yeah. these are these guys people who apps you know? So Andropov is a very smart guy. He recognizes the Soviet Union has huge problems. Is he a believer though? He he doesn't question the system. He just thinks that the system needs a bit of tinkering. You know, apply the spanner here, a bit of oil there, and it will tick along fine. Uh, he doesn't question the mission. I suppose is what I would say. Um, so I mean, Chernenko, he's a hack. He's just a party hack. Andropov is, is clever. He was the Soviet ambassador, I think, in um, Hungary during the Budapest uprising. So he he has taken from that a belief that you have to be you have to be strong. You know, you have to suppress dissent. You can't let things. But he also has taken a belief that um, you have to get in ahead. So you know, you can't let yourself get in a situation where thousands of people are in the streets. You have to keep changing the system to make it yeah. work. Um, so I don't think Andropov is in, he's very severe. He's very strict. He's very anti-corruption. Um, and he's 
clever and he has read forbidden books and he as soviets sort of the, the top brass are allowed to do they're expected to do to inform themselves and he's surrounded himself with aides who are relatively free thinking but he's still i mean everybody there believes in them that their model must triumph and they believe they're in a global competition with this with the united states absolutely yeah and so he is you know said he was head of the kgb he's general secretary during the kind of the coldest days of the of the cold war in the early 80s yes so he he is the guy who's in charge when Reagan is lambasting the Soviet Union as evil, evil empire. empire. Yeah. And it's 99 red balloons and two tribes. Which is very frightening, kind of by the way, for the Soviet leadership. They they think the Americans are going to attack them. Well, I mean, we did a podcast about this with Taylor Downing um, about nuclear war. They absolutely are terrified that the Americans are going to attack them first. Um, but yeah, so Andropov takes over. Brezhnev dies. I mean, Brezhnev basically died multiple times uh, and was literally brought back from the dead. Um, you know, he's sort of resuscitated and dragged around as this sort of embalmed figure in the late 1970s. Andropov succeeds in November 82 and is there till February 84. And as you said, he's basically ill the whole time. I mean, they literally, you know, the, on one side of his bed, there'll be the man with the nuclear briefcase. And the other side of his bed will be the nurse who's keeping him alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he dies. Now, the person he wants to succeed him is the crucial figure in this podcast. And for Putin, a figure of of utter ignominy and shame in Russian history, as indeed he is for a lot of Russians. And that man is Mikhail Gorbachev. That's the man that Andropov wants to take over. But he doesn't. He's too young. So the other people in the Politburo, they they bypass him and they get this old hack, Chernenko, who is another sort of... I mean, he's dying when he takes over. And he's there from February 84 to the spring of 85. So what was it about Gorbachev that Andropov had seen? That's a, that's a, that's a really good question. So Gorbachev is a generation younger. He's the youngest guy, I think, pretty much on the uh, Politburo. He joins in 1980, and he's 49, which is incredibly young by the standards of the Soviet leadership. And he has a glamorous wife. He does, right? He's a very clever wife, who's a very important, I mean, hugely important figure for him, his chief advisor. I mean, his real uh, his real soulmate. Um, so Gorbachev is from a place called Stavropol. He's from a little village called, what's it called? Privolnoye, I think it's called. Um and he's from peasant stock. He's bright. He's, he's super bright. He's gone to Moscow State University. And I think he's read law. He's uh, got a birthmark on his, uh, on his head. He does indeed. Important. He's travelled. So he's been abroad. He even went on a three-week driving holiday in France with Raisa. And they sort of drove around France and said, and said, um, God, you know, this place is so much better than the <laughs> Soviet Union. You know, this is the sort of classic thing that often happens when people are posted to the West. Um, he actually, one of his chief aides, one of his chief advisors is a man called Alexander Yakovlev, who had been ambassador to Canada and, and basically had exactly the same kind of crisis yeah. of confidence. You know, he got to Canada and was like, oh my God, this place is great. Um, but when uh, Gorbachev becomes general secretary, yeah, he, he's still a believer. I mean, he just because he's, he's got nice camembert in France, it doesn't right. mean that Absolutely, he thinks- Tom. Absolutely, he's a believer. He is, he is idealistic. And this is one of the great problems with Gorbachev. Now, Gorbachev is a fascinating character because, of course, everybody listening to this by and large, will think, oh, Gorby, nice guy, you know, Nobel Peace Prize winner, top man. Of course, in Russia, he is regarded with absolute contempt. And I have to say, when you when you start to dig into the story and you think about Gorbachev in a, in a slightly more detached way, I mean, we've done a lot of weak and failed leaders on this podcast, and although it pains me to say it because he's an admirable man in so many ways, I mean, but when he leaves office, he's only in there for six years. And when he leaves, his his country has completely and utterly fallen apart. Now, 
Some people would say that's because the problems are too great. But I think Gorbachev, I think almost all historians actually who really work on this, people like uh, Robert Service or Vladislav Zubok, who wrote a brilliant book called Collapse um, that came out last year, The Fall of the Soviet Union, they would just say Gorbachev is a complete and utter disaster. Why? He's idealistic, Tom. He's, he's bright. He and Raisa have, have spent loads of time talking about the future of the Soviet Union. They like talking to other kind of intellectually kind of people. Um, Gorbachev is also very canny. Um, so he's been able to get up the kind of greasy pole. He's um, powerful patrons like Andropov think a lot of him. He says to Raisa when he joins the, I think it's when he joined the Politburo, he said, um, we can't live like this any longer. And he's determined to fix the system. But he goes about fixing it in such a politically incompetent. I mean, it, I, again, it slightly pains me to say it. Um, but he, he fixes it in such an inept way that absolutely everything gets worse. He does too much, too quickly, too many different areas, and, and everything falls apart. And you said, what is he a believer? He's absolutely a believer. So uh, Vladislav Zubot brings this out really well in his book. He says, you know, Gorbachev is obsessed with Lenin. I mean, this is so much like that. You're parallel with your Christianity stuff about people who, you know, people who would kind of Oliver Cromwell or somebody reading the Bible to guide mm -hmm. them. Gorbachev has Lenin's sort of works on his desk and he will sort of dip into them in the way that people sometimes dip into the Bible. He will dip into them to try and get inspiration for what he needs to do. And he becomes convinced, he is convinced that the Soviet Union has taken a wrong turn since the 1920s and it needs to get back to Lenin's vision. He idealizes Lenin and he thinks Lenin had a vision. It's a more democratic, free, open, creative. And if I can get back to that, we'll establish true communism and, and then we'll turn this sort of sinking ship around. If you can turn a sinking ship around. So metaphor. that's that's quite a kind of abstract sense of mission. But I maybe I've got this wrong, but I thought that he was also focused on a very specific problem which was that uh, the Soviet economy was massively distorted by defense spending. So yeah. they, they're spending, what, 20, 25%? No, it's probably not. To, that's actually been exaggerated. It's about 15%, I think, is the but latest still estimate. still quite a lot. It is, and but it's... If he's going to, if they're going to, you know, guns to butter, yeah, then they need to make things up with the West. So he does that very effectively. I mean, he's very good at that. Yes. He, he, he definitely kind of removes the chill from the Cold War very yes. effectively. So, which is why people in the West, you know, rate him so highly. But as someone who is ideologically committed to Marxist-Leninism, I mean, isn't it a, de a definition of the job that kind of trying to construct an economy that will provide Soviet citizens with all the kind of consumer durables and gizmos that you get in the West is bound to fail. I mean, it's, there's just no way it can be done. No, I don't agree with that. I don't agree, actually don't agree with either of those things. So first of all, the defence spending, um, that has become a very comforting myth that the West tells itself about the Soviet Union, that, I mean, particularly in America, that we crippled, we won the Cold War by increasing defence spending so much that they couldn't keep up. But most historians, I think, would now say they could keep up. I mean, they had defense it. spending. Yeah, they'd done it since the 40s. They could they could have carried on doing it. I mean, that defense spending is not what brings the Soviet Union down. Second point, I forgot what your second point was, Tom. Um, oh, consumer durables. Well, there is a very good example of a communist country that has, you know, embraced a consumer China. economy. And that's China. And the Chinese, I mean, Deng Xiaoping supposedly said something to the effect of he, somebody, his son asked him what he thought of Gorbachev. And he said, I think Gorbachev's a complete idiot. 
Um, yes, but and- this is communism with Chinese characteristics, which basically means a kind of freedom to ignore aspects of communism that don't gel with with making money but but leninism absolutely did. i mean leninism was all about kind of collectivization but Tom, all i think about most suppression of private enterprise but i think most historians would say well first of all that's not what gorbachev himself thinks he thinks lenin's new economic policy in the 1920s after the russian civil war did allow some space for limited private enterprise and that they can move towards a mixed economy um i think there one of the big problems with the soviet union is it's become so reliant on imports paid for with oil revenue and it's completely failed to develop its own kind of consumer industries okay. so it's like saudi arabia with snow <laughs> a bit <laughs> is that what the saudi what do they do do they spend their raw money on snow <laughs> no but i mean it's the saudi you know notoriously um economies that have lots of oil yeah. tend to be dysfunctional well yes iran is a good example from the 70s we talked about iran a lot in previous podcasts um and i think yes it's incredibly dysfunctional i mean it's unbelievably complicated economy uh no one i mean when gorbachev is given they're, they're talking about this thing called the law of state enterprise which is going to be this law that's going to allow a little bit of more freedom for factories to keep their money and to invest it and those sort of thing gorbachev says at one point you know i basically don't understand this and, and nobody really. <laughs> well, well I, I, I feel sympathy. I yeah, mean, basically, see, he's Tom, trying to he's trying to mend a, a, a machine for which there is no instruction manual. I think there's a there's a degree of that, um, but I think he's also you see the thing is he's trying to mend this machine which has incredibly complicated kind of supply chain networks and and it has this weird cashless system that enterprises use with each other, whereas citizens use cash and you can't change one to the other. I mean, it's completely mad. But that's the way it's a bit like any massive sclerotic institution. Once you start to fiddle with it, it becomes very difficult to stop it from falling apart. But the other thing is he combines this with a period. So he has the perestroika, which is restructuring, which kind mm-hmm. of has political and economic developments. But he combines it with glasnost, which is openness. That openness. Yes. And that's in the wake of Chernobyl. So Chernobyl, the explosion at Chernobyl is in April 1986. And after that, Gorbachev thinks, well, I need to I need to increase the speed. We need to have more newspapers. We need to have more discussion. And why is it? Why, why does Chernobyl have that effect on him? Because I think he's he's shocked by the incompetence, um, by the cover-ups, by the ineptitude of the managers, by the way the atomic industry has been run, by their lies, all of that kind of stuff. You know, Gorbachev, of course, he's complicit in covering it up a bit because he's the general secretary and he kind of ha- feels like he has to, but he still thinks. Okay, we need to, you know, we just need to be more open and we need to be more creative. Crucially, one of the things he does now, one of the things we haven't talked about at all, which is very important for understanding Putin, is the Soviet Union, and I know we have a lot of very kind of, to us, young listeners, the Soviet Union is not anything like a nation state, and it doesn't even really see itself as an empire. So it's got 15 republics um, going all the way from Estonia, I mean, it's a mad state in many ways it's existed you know one form or another since the 20s but it's got going all the way from estonia to kind of tajikistan and the russians are about roughly about 50 percent of that you know the russian population and there has always been the issue of nationalism you know there's always been tensions in the caucasus in central asia in the baltics and so on and gorbachev has this idea that by basically devolving a lot of power to the republics. I mean, devolution, Tom, what could possibly go wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, de- devolving power to the republics, uh, that will invigorate the system. You know? But at the same time, 
He wants to open everything up so people can debate things more freely. So that will obviously give nationalism more room to sort of to flourish. Yeah. But he also look, combines that with an attack on what he sees as the corruption of the old elites. So the old elites are embattled. People are talking about new ideas, but they're also being given more power. The, the whole thing, it's a sort of, he, he creates unwittingly a kind of breeding ground for all these kind of nationalistic movements to thrive. And you see it as early as 1986. You see it in Kazakhstan and in the Baltics and in Ukraine, movements calling for new language rights and you know opposing power stations and all these kinds of things. So the seeds of trouble are there even after he's only been there a year. And Dominic, do we know what Putin is doing yes, during this we time? Yes, we do. So this he's is in St. Petersburg still? No, no, this is the interesting thing. He's not. So around about the point where uh, Chernenko gave way to Gorbachev, where Gorbachev came into power, Vladimir Putin has has been he's been working for the KGB since the late seventies, and he has now been posted to Dresden in East Germany. Oh, of course, he has. Yes, of course. So what he's doing, and he's yes. doing sort of slightly. It seems there are different stories. Some people say he's just compiling information about dissidents. Some people say actually he's trying to sort of forge links with the sort of remnants of the Red Army faction, the Bader Meinhof gang in West Germany. We don't know because, of course, it's secret. But what we know is he's watching all this from outside. So he has left a state that he thinks is powerful, you know, strong, respected in the world, high status. And he sees this guy trying to reform it, to change things. And that's really important, I think, that Putin is watching it from outside and he's watching it, frankly, with horror. And he's in East Germany, which has a higher standard of living relative to the Soviet Union. It does indeed, yes. So he is alert to, presumably, some of the problems that the Soviet economy faces. Yes. I, I don't think you asked if Putin was a communist. Um, he's certainly not a communist now and has not been since the fall of the USSR. But what he is, is a believer in the Russian world, in the Russian yeah. sphere of influence. And I yeah. think that's what's going to trouble him as we get into the late 80s and early 90s, that that starts to fragment and fall apart. Well, I think that's enough for today. So that's the end of today's episode. Uh, please join us tomorrow to hear about when things really start imploding for Gorbachev in the late 80s and in due course for the Soviet Union itself. We will see you tomorrow. So that was the first of four episodes in our mini-series on the Soviet Union, Russia and Vladimir Putin. And in the next three episodes, we go from the fall of the USSR under Mikhail Gorbachev. We look at the economic nightmare and basket case that was Russia in the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin. And we tell the story of the rise of Vladimir Putin and the consolidation of his power since the turn of the millennium. Now, if you enjoyed this, we are called The Rest is History, and we're a history podcast in which Tom Holland and I cover everything from Julius Caesar to Watergate, from Alexander the Great to Tony Blair. And you can find a link in the episode description or by searching for The Rest is History wherever you found this podcast. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 